This is Chapter 2 of Mark Twain, His Life and Work, a biographical sketch by William M. Clemens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Samuel Langhorne Clemens, read by John Greenman. There is more or less obscurity surrounding the ancestry and birth of Mark Twain. His ancestors were of Dutch and English extraction. The Clemens family extended back to Nicholas Clemens, who lived in Holland early in the last century. Upon the maternal side, the Langhorns were of English birth. In the days of the Revolution there came to America three sturdy pioneers bearing the Clemens name. One of these settled in Virginia, another in Pennsylvania. The former prospered in the southern colony, and the name became well known in the south, more especially in the political history of that section early in the present century. Jeremiah Clemens was a United States senator from Alabama, and a congressman, a judge, and other dignitaries bore the name. John Marshall Clemens, the father of Mark Twain, was one of a fine Virginia family, a man of brain and force of character. He migrated to Kentucky and soon thereafter to Adair County in Tennessee. He was married there in Fentress County to Miss Langhorne, a warm-hearted domestic woman with great emotional depths. The family fled from those vast landed possessions in Tennessee so graphically described in The Gilded Age, and crossed the river into Missouri in 1829, locating in the town of Florida in Monroe County. A few months after their arrival, Samuel Langhorne Clemens first saw the light of day on the 30th of November, 1835. Three years later, the family removed to Hannibal, a river town in Marion County. In 1840, the elder Clemens filled the ancient and honorable office of Justice of the Peace. He was a stern, unbending man of sterling common sense, and was, indeed, the autocrat of the little dingy room on Bird Street, where he held his court and preserved order in the village. The courtroom fairly indicated the rustic simplicity of the people and the frugal manner in which Judge Clemens lived and transacted business. The furniture consisted of a dry-goods box, which served the double purpose of a desk for the judge and a table for the lawyers, three or four rude stools, and a puncheon bench for the jury. Here, on court days, when the judge climbed upon his three-legged stool, rapped upon the box with his knuckles, and demanded silence in the court, it was fully expected that silence would reign supreme. As a general thing, the rough characters who lounged about to see the wheels of justice move bowed submissively to the mandates of the judge. An overbearing, turbulent, and quarrelsome man named Allen B. MacDonald was an exception, and many a time he had violated the rules and been rebuked by the court. Upon one occasion, MacDonald was plaintive in a case against one Jacob Smith. Judge Clemens was presiding with his usual dignity, and the courtroom was filled with witnesses and friends of the parties to the suit. One Frank Snyder, a peaceable citizen, had given his testimony in favor of Defendant Smith and resumed his seat, when MacDonald, with an exasperated air, made a face at him. As quick as a flash, Snyder whipped out an old pepper-box revolver and emptied every barrel at MacDonald, hurting no one but filling the room with smoke and consternation. 
in the confusion that followed judge clemens doubtless remembering macdonald's turbulent spirit instantly concluded that he was the aggressor and seizing a hammer that lay near by he dealt him a blow that sent him senseless and quivering to the floor the court was completely master of the situation being a kind-hearted man he was greatly mortified when he learned that he had struck the wrong fellow but the oldest inhabitant never heard him admit that it was a lick amiss his death occurred in eighteen forty three his grave in mount olivet cemetery near hannibal is marked by a tasteful monument erected by his son hannibal was a sleepy river town characteristic of that day william dean howells in a brief sketch of mark twain's career says hannibal as a name is hopelessly confused and ineffective but if we know nothing of mr clemens from hannibal we can know much of hannibal from mr clemens who in fact has studied a loafing out at elbows down at the heels slave-holding mississippi river town of thirty years ago with such strong reality in his boy's romance of tom sawyer that we need inquire nothing further concerning the type the original perhaps no longer exists anywhere certainly not in hannibal which has grown into a flourishing little city the morality of the place was the morality of a slave-holding community fierce arrogant one-sided the religion was calvinism in various phases with its predestinate aristocracy of saints and its rabble of hopeless sinners doubtless young clemens escaped neither of the opposing influences wholly his people like the rest were slaveholders but his father like so many other slaveholders abhorred slavery silently as he must in such a time and place mark twain's childhood home was that of an ordinary backwoods infant his boyhood was a series of mischievous adventures he was sent to school at an early age where he says he excelled only in spelling he delighted to spend much of his time upon the river and so successfully was he in getting into the turbid waters that he was dragged out of the river six times before he was twelve years of age his mother said of him sam was always a good-hearted boy but he was a very wild and mischievous one and do what we could we could never make him go to school this used to trouble his father and me dreadfully and we were convinced that he would never amount to as much in the world as his brothers because he was not near so steady and sober-minded as they were often his father would start him off to school and in a little while would follow him to ascertain his whereabouts there was a large stump on the way to the schoolhouse and sam would take his position behind that and as his father went past would gradually circle around it in such a way as to keep out of sight finally his father and the teacher both said it was of no use to try to teach sam anything because he was determined not to learn but i never gave up he was always a great boy for history and could never get tired of that kind of reading but he hadn't any use for schoolhouses and textbooks a friend who lived amid the scenes of his boyhood writes the old home of the clemens family was a two-story brick with a large tree in front a little way down the river is the cave by which tom sawyer made his wonderful escape and by means of an underground passage the city of hannibal is easily regained 
we used to play about the old village blacksmith shop and were always in mischief the old blacksmith became so provoked one day that he caught sam and with a shingle made him so sore that he did not sit down for a week as soon as sam recovered we went up on the hill immediately above the blacksmith shop and every day for about a week we worked at digging up a big boulder finally we got all the earth from around it and all we had to do was to give it a shove and down the hill it would go with terrible velocity saturday afternoon was always a holiday in hannibal in those days this particular afternoon was a beautiful june day and the blacksmith shop was closed about three o'clock in the afternoon we started the boulder down the hill it struck the blacksmith shop and the building was almost demolished in a humorous sketch written in eighteen seventy mark twain tells the following of his father and his boyhood when i say that i never knew my austere parent to be enamored of but one poem in all the long half-century that he lived persons who knew him will easily believe me when i say that i have never composed but one poem in all the long third of a century that i have lived persons who know me will be sincerely grateful and finally when i say that the poem which i composed was not the one which my father was enamored of persons who may have known us both will not need to have this truth shot into them with a mountain howitzer before they can receive it my father and i were always on the most distant terms when i was a boy a sort of armed neutrality so to speak at irregular intervals this neutrality was broken and suffering ensued but i will be candid enough to say that the breaking and the suffering were always divided up with strict impartiality between us which is to say my father did the breaking and i did the suffering as a general thing i was a backward cautious unadventurous boy but once i jumped off a two-story stable another time i gave an elephant a plug of tobacco and retired without waiting for an answer and still another time i pretended to be talking in my sleep and got off a portion of every original conundrum in hearing of my father let us not pry into the result it was of no consequence to any one but me but the poem i have referred to as attracting my father's attention and achieving his favor was hiawatha some man who courted a sudden and awful death presented him an early copy and i never lost faith in my own senses until i saw him sit down and go to reading it in cold blood saw him open the book and heard him read these following lines with the same inflectionless judicial frigidity with which he always read his charge to the jury or administered an oath to a witness 
take your bow o hiawatha take your arrows jasper-headed take your war-club pugawagon and your mittens minjikawan and your birch canoe for sailing and the oil of mishinama from all accounts mark was an incorrigible boy filled with roving imaginations from his very earliest age many of the scenes in his books are taken from the real occurrences of his boyhood the steamboat scene in the gilded age was witnessed by him while out on his aimless wanderings his adventure with a dead man in his father's office was also literally true he had played hooky from school all day and far into the night was absent and rather than go home and be greeted with a flogging raised the window and climbed into the office with the intention of resting all night upon a lounge his description of the horror creeping over him as he saw a ghastly hand lying in the moonlight how he shut his eyes and tried to count and opened them in time to see the dead man lying on the floor stiff and stark with a ghastly wound in his side and at last how he beat a terrified retreat through the window carrying the sash with him for convenience is vividly remembered by every reader of his works mrs clemens asserts that the whole affair transpired as mark recorded it the man was killed in a street fight almost in front of the office door and was taken in there while a post-mortem examination was held and there left until next morning during the night mark came in and the scene he has so ludicrously but graphically depicted was enacted his books abound in stories of his boyhood tom sawyer tells of his youthful adventures although his counterpart is more correctly depicted in huckleberry finn in his old times on the mississippi he says when i was a boy there was but one permanent ambition among my comrades in our village on the west bank of the mississippi river that was to be a steamboat man we had transient ambitions of other sorts but they were only transient when a circus came and went it left us all burning to become clowns the first negro minstrel show that came to our section left us all suffering to try that kind of life now and then we had a hope that if we lived and were good god would permit us to become pirates these ambitions faded out each in its turn but the ambition to be a steamboatman always remained when the father died the mother was left with four children sam being twelve years of age the sons realized that they must do their part in the struggle for the support of the family in those early years he tried various methods of earning a livelihood and finally entered the office of the hannibal weekly courier as a printer's apprentice at a printer's banquet in new york some years ago he told the story of his apprenticeship in which he said it may be that the printer of today is not the printer of thirty-five years ago i was no stranger to him i knew him well i built the fire for him in the winter mornings i brought his water from the village pump i swept out his office 
I picked up his type from under his stand, and, if he was there to see it, I put the good type in his case and the broken ones among the hell matter, and if he wasn't there to see, I dumped it all with the pie on the imposing stone, for that was the furtive fashion of the cub, and I was the cub. I wetted down the paper Saturdays, I turned it Sundays, for this was a country weekly, I rolled, I washed the rollers, I washed the forms, I folded the papers, I carried them around in the disagreeable dawn Thursday mornings. The carrier was then an object of interest to all the dogs in town. If I had saved up all the bites I ever received, I could keep Monsieur Pasteur busy for a year. I enveloped the papers that were for the mail. We had one hundred town subscribers and three hundred and fifty country ones. The town subscribers paid in groceries, and the country ones in cabbage and cordwood, when they paid at all, which was merely sometimes, and then we always stated the fact in the paper and gave them a puff, and if we forgot to, they stopped the paper. Every man in the town list helped to edit the thing, that is, he gave orders as to how it was to be edited, dictated its opinions, marked out its course for it, and every time the boss failed to connect, he stopped his paper. Life was easy with us. If we pied a form, we suspended till next week, and we always suspended every now and then, when the fishing was good, and explained it by the illness of the editor, a paltry excuse, because that kind of a paper was just as well off with a sick editor as a well one, and better off with a dead one than with either of them. I can see that printing office of prehistoric times yet, with its horse bills on the walls, its D boxes clogged with tallow, because we always stood the candle in the K box nights, its towel, which was not considered soil till it could stand alone, and other signs and symbols that marked the establishment of that kind in the Mississippi Valley. For three years he worked faithfully in the office of the courier, and at the age of fifteen considered himself a full-fledged journeyman printer. He had been earning fifty cents a week, and had saved his money. One evening, upon coming home, he asked his mother for five dollars. On being questioned as to what he wanted with it, he said he wanted it to start out traveling with. He failed to obtain the five dollars, but he assured his mother that he would go all the same, and he really went, nor did the old lady ever set eyes on him again until he had become a man. He had made up his mind to run away and see the exposition in New York. He worked his way eastward as a tramp printer, stopping for several weeks in Sandusky and other towns in Ohio. Arriving in New York, his worldly possessions amounted to twelve dollars, a ten-dollar bill of which sum he had sewed into his coat-sleeve. 
after he had visited and carefully examined the long-coveted exposition he found employment in the printing office of john n green some two or three months after this the boy met a man from his own town of hannibal and fearing that his whereabouts would be reported he suddenly took his departure for philadelphia he secured work in the office of the ledger and other newspapers and remained in the quaker city for several months while here as a result of taking the part of a poor boy who was imposed upon by a fireman he was severely beaten by the latter so that he resembled lisbon after the earthquake to quote his own language one day he made up his mind that he had seen enough of the world in the eastern states and with his ten dollars still sewed in his coat-sleeve he started westward having in view his missouri home he tarried a while in cincinnati louisville and other river towns and finally arrived in st louis he was at this time seventeen years of age and his longings and ambitions for river life returned i first wanted to be a cabin boy he says and then a deckhand who stood on the end of the stage plank with a coil of rope in his hand because he was particularly conspicuous but these were only daydreams they were too heavenly to be contemplated as real possibilities i said i never would come home again till i was a pilot and could come in glory but somehow i could not manage it i went weakly aboard a few boats that lay packed together like sardines at the long st louis wharf and very humbly inquired for the pilots but got only a cold shoulder and short words from mates and clerks but i was ashamed to go home i was in cincinnati and i set to work to map out a new career i had been reading about the recent explorations of the river amazon by an expedition sent out by our government it was said that the expedition owing to difficulties had not thoroughly explored a part of the country lying about the headwaters some four thousand miles from the mouth of the river it was only about fifteen hundred miles from cincinnati to new orleans where i could doubtless get a ship i had thirty dollars left i would go on and complete the exploration of the amazon i packed my valise and took passage on an ancient tub called the paul jones for new orleans for the sum of sixteen dollars i had the scarred and tarnished splendors of her main saloon principally to myself for she was not a creature to attract the eye of wiser travelers when we presently got under way and went poking down the broad ohio i became a new being and the subject of my own admiration i was a traveler a word had never tasted so good in my mouth before i kept my hat off all the time and stayed where the wind and the sun could strike me because i wanted to get a bronzed and weather-beaten look of an old traveller 
before the second day was half gone i experienced a joy which filled me with the purest gratitude for i saw that the skin had begun to blister and peel off my neck and face i wished that the boys and girls at home could see me now after two weeks the paul jones reached norlands and the young traveler discovered two things one was that a vessel would not be likely to sail for the mouth of the amazon under ten or twelve years and the other was that the nine or ten dollars still left in my pocket would not suffice for so imposing an exploration as i had planned even if i could afford to wait for a ship therefore it followed that i must contrive a new career the paul jones was now bound for st louis i planned a siege against my pilot and at the end of three hard days he surrendered he agreed to teach me the mississippi from new orleans to st louis for five hundred dollars payable out of the first wages i should receive after graduating i entered upon the small enterprise of learning twelve or thirteen hundred miles of the great mississippi river with the easy confidence of my time of life if i had really known what i was about to require of my faculties i should not have had the courage to begin the work proved hard and discouraging for the youth but he finally reached the desired position of pilot and had the proud satisfaction of receiving two hundred and fifty dollars per month here he remained for five years till he was twenty-six when the growth of railroads and the civil war made piloting unprofitable an old steamboatman captain h e bixby furnishes the following interesting reminiscences of mark twain's experience of a pilot in eighteen fifty two i was chief pilot on the paul jones a boat that made occasional trips from pittsburgh to new orleans one day a tall angular hoosier-like young fellow whose limbs appeared to be fastened with leather hinges entered the pilot-house and in a peculiar drawling voice said good morning sir don't you want to take er peart young fellow and teach him how to be your pilot no sir there is more bother about it than it's worth i wish you would mister i'm a printer by trade but it don't appear to agree with me and i'm on my way to central america for my health i believe i'll make a tolerable good pilot cause i like the river what makes you pull your words that way i don't know mister you'll have to ask my ma she pulls hern too ain't there some way that we can fix it so that you'll teach me how to be your pilot the only way is for money how much are you going to charge well i'll teach you the river for five hundred dollars gee willikins he he i ain't got five hundred dollars 
but I've got five lots in Keokuk, Iowa, and two thousand acres of land in Tennessee that is worth two bits an acre any time. You can have that if you want it. I told him I did not care for his land, and after talking a while he agreed to pay one hundred dollars in cash, one hundred and fifty dollars in twelve months, and the balance when he became a pilot. He was with me for a long time, but sometimes took occasional trips with other pilots. He was always drawling out dry jokes, but then we did not pay any attention to him. Upon the western rivers the occurrence of sandbars, together with snags and other obstructions, require constant watchfulness on the part of those who run the boats, and frequent soundings in shallow places. Upon approaching a sandbar or shallow, the captain takes his stand upon the edge of the hurricane deck in front of the pilot-house, while one of the crew stands at the bow to cast the lead and give the soundings to the captain, who repeats them to the pilot. When the line-man draws up the lead and finds the water down two feet, he sings out, "'By the mark, Twain!' or, as is more frequently the case, simply, "'Mark Twain!' The captain repeats to the pilot, and it becomes the latter to mind his helm. But as the length of the line below the water increases, he gives out the soundings in a constantly increasing joyous tone, singing out, three feet, or four feet, in a sing-song cadence, until all danger is past, and the line is laid away. This specimen of Mississippi River vernacular, Mark Twain, was in his later years adopted by Samuel L. Clemens as a nom de plume. End of chapter 2 Read by John Greenman